1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Rujan, and today I'm joined by Ellen Punzan isaac Professor of American Studies and English at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. We'll be talking about his book, Filipino Time, Affected Worlds, and Contracted Labor, published in 2022 by Fordham University Press. Thank you very much, Alan, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to talk to you.
2: So let's start with the beginnings of the book. Can you tell us about your background and how you came to thinking at the intersections of time, affect, migration, and labor? So
0: thank you for that question. I I grew up in Jersey City. I came uh, with my family in bits and pieces in the 1970s to the United States from the Philippines. I was born in Manila. Um, And it was also the case that growing up in Jersey City, I was also growing up in an immigrant community. That is to say, there were lots of different immigrants uh, from different uh, time periods, Italians, Jews, Puerto Ricans, uh, people who share the same colonial history as the Philippines, like Puerto Ricans, other folks uh, from Mexico and Latin America, as well, of course, you know, uh, black and other Latino communities. Um, and so it becomes sort of like an agglomeration of, uh, languages as well as sensibilities and different relationships to America, the concept, right? And so I also knew that a lot of Filipinos over the years, over the decades, uh, also migrated, just like myself, some of them actually went to Australia, others would of course, you know, migrate, and I mean, when I say others, I actually mean cousins, who would migrate not only to Australia, but then also work in the Gulf countries, also work in Europe, or work in other parts of Asia, or even the territories of the United States. So I know very well that Filipinos tend to have transnational families. And I always thought, like, even as a a kid, I would always think about the ways we would call either the United States or either uh, other people in the uh, in the cousin network or even back in the Philippines. And the first question is, what time is it there? As if we didn't know. Uh, So in a sense that there is always a disjoint. Right. But yet there's always a desire for affirmation of something that you already know, because that's part of the conversation and the fact that you acknowledge that your world's away from each other. But then also like, you know, in the current day, especially during COVID, um, so there's a lot of like, you know, uh, cousin threads because of course everyone is dispersed. And the way we communicate with each other, of course, is through these threads. They're my my uh, father had nine brothers and sisters. So there are a lot of cousins, you know, that range a whole generation. We're 20, 30 years apart, some of us. And so there's a way by which of course that created a synchronicity. Uh, from different time zones and different parts of the world. Um, And so, um, I think that my childhood, even just my personal experience, and then also even as uh, someone who lives in the United States, we all know the concept of the call center agent. Right? The Philippine call center agent, which I also know are cousins, which is to say, like, I do have cousins who actually work in the industry, in the BPO industry. Um, And what fascinated me at first about these questions is like, uh aha, so they actually work in reverse time zones. Right. So it's actually early in the morning over there while they're actually responding to my calls about like a broken TV set or I have to open up my Sprint account or, you know, talk about my student loans or something like that. Uh, so all of these are actually then in sync with the global north, knowing quite well that they live in these sort of like uh, enclaves that are actually lit up at night. Whenever I visit Manila, they're very specific places. So these are sort of call centers. So. These are all different ways by which you know time, migration, internal migration, uh, and labor. And the fact that these are all Filipinos are sent out throughout the world to be teachers, to be caregivers, to be nurses, all these things are about being paid to make time for other people. So I just wanted to get that stretch of possibility of the way uh, we can think about time and also labor uh, and migrancy and being part of a whole network, right? It's not just the individual laborer or worker or subject, but it really is about how that subject is transformed in diasporic consciousness with the rest of their transnational family.
2: Wow. I mean, throughout the book, you know, I was very amazed with how you weave in, um, your analysis and storytelling with this theoretical background. But right now, you know, I'm really, you know, you're really woven in your personal history within that and you've really given us the core of the book. So I really appreciate this answer. And with that, you know, there are some things you mentioned about the book. I am going to dive right into it and ask you about, in my reading, a concept that really anchors the book, which is the thing. So could you speak to this vernacular concept and what does it capture about the complex temporalities around return and recovery or perhaps even synchronicity that you mentioned for Filipinos navigating these um, different, you know, kinds of labor across the globe?
0: The thing is an interesting uh vernacular concept because it is part of everyday speech and it's also it started off as a, a, a like literally it means arrival right uh someone's arrival oh someone uh, and so you're the thing but also in, sort, in 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 queer vernacular which is really mainstream vernacular so um at first it is about certain a queer sensibility that i was getting at as well The thing someone's the thing is someone's composure and the way they compose themselves and the world around them. That is to say, what is their bearing? Um, and, 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 and I think what I was trying to get at when I was looking at sort of the different nuances of this word, the thing, it's also your impact in the room. Like if someone comes in and everybody sort of looks at that person, that person has the thing. And it's usually gendered male because it's usually sense it's about the intensity or the strength of their presence. Right. Um, And some people would think about it as charisma, perhaps, or attractiveness um, or uh, uh, prepossession, uh, prepossessing quality. Uh, But what's interesting about those English translation is that it's really about about the person seeking attention. Right attraction, right? Uh, Or a magnetic personality. But on the contrary, the thing, at least in the Filipino concept, is actually about something, an energy that goes from the person outwards, right? And then has an impact. It's about appeal and impact. So there's a way by which the person around, the people around the room are collectivized by admiring somebody who just came in. And then they would say, oh my gosh, so-and-so has such the thing. Right? So it's actually centrifugal por- force or centrifugal energy, that is to say, it goes to the room itself. It actually then reshapes the room. It's not as if the person is necessarily, not necessarily seeking attention. Although that's true, probably, you know, you make yourself attractive. It's all part of a certain sociality. But your desire for sociality, in fact, you know, which is very important, at least in Filipino culture, is to make sure that there's certain other centeredness right? It's not about the self-centeredness, but the other centeredness to create sort of harmony around the room, right? And so that that, that is how you treat guests. And then I think other traditional cultures have this. How do you treat guests? How do you treat the stranger? How do you treat uh, 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 and uh, with respect people who are older and, and are strangers, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is, 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 is a type of sociality. Um, but it's also, since it's about arrival, It is also about recomposing the atmosphere of the room. So you change the narrative and how people relate to you and to each other, right? So that's what the thing gets at conceptually. And and rather than seeing the thing as sort of a point in time, it really is about sort of like a retelling of a story. So before you came into the room, the party hasn't started. When you come into the room, the party started. So there's a different party. Each time somebody comes in, there's a different party in a sense. So there's a different story that happens. Uh, and I think that, that that's why I think it's very important you know, to, uh, uh, to get an affect when we're talking about sort of like the way we understand uh, stories and times uh, and linearity. That arrival is not just a point of time that is to say the beginning, but rather it is always about retelling the story over and over again. So rather than sort of think about migration and returns, what if return was simply a different type of arrival, an iteration of arrival, which means it reshapes the story once again. So it doesn't actually, and and, and I don't mean to reset, oh, we're living history again. No, no, no. You're about thinking about other possibilities that the new person always brings with them a new possibility to the story itself. So it's not an easy beginning, middle, and end, right? Even if it's about a return home. No, but maybe a return home is not just about sort of recovering home, but telling a different story of what home means to you, the returnee, but also what does home mean to the people you're returning to? So again, meanings come sort of like uh, become jumbled up again. Uh, And I think that's sort of interesting, um, sort of as far as a literary critic is inserted or a cultural critic on how sort of like, you know, how can we understand migrancy rather than simply a push pull factor, really something more more complicated about making meaning for ourselves and also making meaning for our families back home. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate what you mentioned about storytelling. So, you no know, meaning is made through storytelling, and going back to your previous response, you no know, people um, are getting in sync with different temporalities to do certain kinds of care labor through storytelling. And to me, it was interesting. Um, that in the book you trace what you call a capacious archive of storytelling about the Filipino labor diaspora in fiction. So I was wondering if you could speak to us more about what was at stake for you to foreground storytelling as archive and storytelling in fiction as you took on um, these capacious tasks in the book
0: stems from the fact that my training is in comparative literature so I'm a comparatist uh, by, by trade and also by training uh, and so I'm very invested in literature as creating sort of like uh, not only in archives but an also an archive of absences an archive of, 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 of silences an archive of gaps uh, these are important that's that's part of language that is to say what we say and what we don't say is part of how we relate to people uh, that in fact storytelling even in the moment of caregiving which is to say you are in a sense making time for another person right whether it's the elderly or a young person or teaching them you are in fact creating a relationship that storytelling is about relationships uh and it's also trying to co-narrate the time the moment that is to say that it is not a determinate ending and I think one of the sort of wonderful things in, and in, 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 in I wanted to distinguish between two things, what we do as scholars, as literary scholars in the close reading is to make sure in a sense that our sentence itself is about plenitude. That is to say, the one sentence, in fact, makes possible many things, that it holds many tensions and ambiguities and contradictions together in something called sense right? Uh, So on the level of the sentence, I'm invested in that way to think about how um, plenitude and possibility happens, even as we tell a story. But on the other hand, when we're talking about sort of like trans subjectivities, which is to say, I'm caring for someone else, I am teaching someone, I'm caring for the elderly, I am caring uh, as a nurse to a sick patient, I am also telling the story together. That I don't have a predetermined ending. I don't have a predetermined outcome. We have a relationship that is to say, you know, I'm caring for you. I am your carer. I am getting paid. There is an economic relationship as well, as well as the fact that there is about creative abilities. It is about my ability to, to improvise, it's about my ability to share my dream and hope with you so you can get better whatever that means better better in but because better becomes redefined right whether it's about elder care or whether it's about you know child care or whether it's about patient care right better okay let's we have to think about and what what can we do better just even when i actually visit your room at 2 in the morning and actually see if you're okay right maybe that's better you know that you're okay just that moment that's momentary, that it's actually almost ephemeral. And I think we have those, we have those sort of like um, times in care work in which it's not about the job, it's about the concatenation of these moments that create the conditions of care, right? The state, of course, uh, and certainly the culture dictate what care means, right? But what are these moments? And of course, as as a cultural critic, as a literary critic, I am very invested in the moment, the moment in which it is full, that in fact, that it is is apparent that I am with you, you are with me, and it's our witness that is actually important, not the end product or the end service for that matter. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate how you draw our attention to storytelling as something through which relationships emerge or get reiterated but also different kinds of temporalities and um something that really piqued my attention was this careful attention you brought to the in-between times that emerge especially in the short stories you engaged with like speculation mean times and blind futurity so what can these in between times tell us about the timeliness through which migrant laborers build
0: worlds Right. and and of course I use the short story because it it it, 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 it always is seen as a, you know a narrative economy number one and these are all economic narratives just to play on words the idea that it is about laborers you know working for money as well as the fact that they, you know these are short stories that are about trying to condense you know feeling and and, and some kind of happenstance or happening um, in a very short Space relative to the novel, that is, it's all relative at the end of the day, right? Uh, so there's always debate about what is what creates a short story. So I I acknowledge that. Um, so the idea of in between times, I, I guess I would take from two things. Um, what does in between what do I mean by in between? So, number one. I'm thinking about Yves you know, Sedgwick's, Sedgwick's touching feeling in the sense of the in-between. That is to say, what is the transness? What is the in-between between you and me, right? That is to say, what is the relationality between you and me, the caregiver and the carer? The person who responds to, who calls me as a call center agent, what is the relationship? It is that exchange that we have. So I'm talking about affective exchange when I say in-between in that sense. But I also mean, in between times, when what we think of, when we think about narrative, it's like, supposedly, when something, nothing, or when nothing happens. I'm always interested when nothing happens, or at least what apparently is not happening. But because we understand that, or at least I conjecture, that in between times is about a place where time accumulates. You know, what I say in the book is chronic accumulations. That is to say, lots of different times accumulate in those moments of silence or where nothing or something is in stasis. But in fact, a whole sort of interior interior world, you know, sort of of, of emotions, of affect and differentiating those two things and how they actually make possible the next step, right? What makes that person decide on something? right? That's why it's like speculation. It's like, oh, well, then I'm hoping I'm choosing this particular thing, because I'm hoping for this outcome. But of course, none of the outcomes are ever guaranteed. You just make a calculated outcome. And it's that moment of calculation, to me, is about sort of trying to figure out where you're at. There's so many factors and so many random things that we have that come into our decisions. And then we just hope against hope. (laughs) And that to me is sort of interesting. And in that you know, hope, of course, is, is sort of like part of the, the, the migrant condition, right? There's always the next thing, maybe, you know, uh, there has to be that. Otherwise, what am I doing this for, you know? Um, and so the in-between time to me is, is about the chronic accumulations, the, the way that time and possibility accumulate in, in a place where nothing seems to happen, but lots of things are happening is what i would argue but also the in between is about how we make time with another person it is about trans it is about the sort of like the, the 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 silences as well as the verbal sort of like relationality that we relationships that we create because they're produced all the time caring is not just one thing right you always as you said it's always about producing and reproducing, iterating and reiterating the very relationship that we are, why we're in the same room together at all, you know, whether by voice or by physical body, right? So we have to actually reinvent continually, moment by moment, this relationship. And it's a dialogue, you know, so it's always about the the transness of trans subjectivity.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting what you said about, you know, like nothing is happening uh, and attending to that. That's such a, you know, pertinent concern in anthropology, especially in ethnography, to not do away with those moments that don't seem spectacular. And, you know, you attend to that quite a bit in short stories and ethnography is part of this book as well. I'm just curious about, you know, how you thought about that in your ethnographic practice as well.
0: Right. So I I, I would never call myself an ethnographer. That is, you know, obviously a training. I try to do my best. uh, And I am respectful of the methodology uh, that anthropologists um, certainly um, are very invested in. And I try to respect it. But there is always there is a fine tradition, I think, uh, for those uh, literary critics and cultural critics, especially those uh, dealing with the global south to really Also engage with people. That is to say, it's about context, right? So I think it also is very important for someone who works in um, uh, marginalized communities or works in in, in spaces in the global south. Uh, And of course, there's hierarchies involved to understand the hierarchies and the hierarchies of signification within that space. And I think it's important to be there and I I, I do not underestimate the, the, the value of literally hanging out, right? An anthropologist has to hang out. They have to be bored with everyone else. They have to, you know, make small talk. They don't they sometimes just have to observe. They also have to understand, like, where the gaps are, as you said. You know, why are they silent? Ah, they're not answering this question. They will skirt around an issue and it's important, but yet it seems to be the most important issue. Um, and I think it's really important to actually know because you're writing about a culture or a culture's literature or cultural expression, you know, whether it's performance or literature or theater um, or music for that matter, but really. What what does that do? Uh, How does it create community? How does it call into being a community? Um, And so ethnography has all those values for me. And when I was actually uh, interviewing call center agents and managers and industry people, um, those are not only am I actually setting foot in a different reality called the offshore, you know, and also the fact that I, I, as, I, as I mentioned to you in our conversation it, it, is, is that, you know, when you return to Manila or any major city, even smaller cities now, these are sort of like gleaming light areas, you know, in the middle of the night at three, four in the morning where, you know, activity is happening and people are commuting uh, and and drinking and having breakfast, you know, but really it's dinner, et cetera, et cetera. So, I also needed to hang out there because how to actually understand their day or their daily life, their quotidian. Like, how do you make, uh, I, I, I think cultural critics and literary critics are very invested in figuring out the granular within sort of like the larger narrative. Yes, we can talk about globalization. Yes, we can talk about capitalism. Yes, we can talk about sort of labor extraction. Yes, we can talk about sort of like ways by which, you know, call center agents do this or that. But I was interested in how they deal with the five minutes of the call. I want to know how they deal with the reversal of night and day for their activities and family activities or non-family activities. I want to know how they deal with sort of like, you know, these sort of like bonding experiences, which is to say team building exercises for, enforced upon them by their employers. I want to know why they even went uh, to, the, to the call center industry in the first place. Most of them were trained to be nurses, right? But then the nursing uh, shortage in the in, in the U.S. actually, you know, was no was no longer there. And then under the Trump administration, under the Trump administration, actually migration actually stopped. Uh, but then now it's starting again. So again, everyone has to shift. How do they modulate sort of like their everyday and also their aspirations for future, you know, according to sort of like these shifts? In global sort of like narrative and global capital right and I think just even getting at that sort of like dreams what do, how do they see the future however specious or however unpredictable it is and they would say that right off the bat of course we don't know you know uh, but I'm doing this now so you know, ethnography, what I was saying is like, oh, but it's also a recording of time. How do we record time? How do we pass the time? How do we go against sort of like the overdetermined notion of time, which is the work time, which is to say national futures or global futures, which they may or may not have any uh, stake in making. It's like you're being just drift drafted into this flow, but yet how do you live this flow? Right. I mean, if it, if we are in in, in sort of um, the the, the if, if we are in the stage of capitalism where it's about flows and modulations, well, then how do we live the everyday? How do we live our work lives? How do we live our aspirations in these flows that are constantly changing?
1: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, and I was very interested in the small refusals within living the flow, so to speak, in call centers. Um, So, you know, you really show us, as you mentioned, that the offshore is perhaps not a place, but a set of Cosmopolitan aspirations and futurities, um, but you know, small refusals like center hopping come with them. So I'm curious about how um, you thought about refusal together with futurity and the present in these um, spaces or relationalities, perhaps not so much spaces, uh, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and it's just it, it all came out came out in the hanging out right uh, so thanks to sort of like you know the methods of anthropologists uh, um, and just talking and being with uh, folks which is really important to just elicit um, how they deal with the callers number one because of course you know callers always need something that's why otherwise they wouldn't be calling that's the definition of their job is someone is in crisis so needs something and they're supposed to respond in the name of some big corp uh, some big transnational corporation like sprint or at and or uh comcast or some other thing right so you are the voice the human voice behind this sort of like abstraction called capital right um and of course, this idea is that, so of course people call either irate or wanting something, but then you're, you're bombarded with this 80 times a day, right? All the five minute calls, it has to be five minutes because then you'll be downgraded um, if you don't actually finish or resolve a call in five minutes, uh, but 80 times a day, how do you actually absorb or not absorb, right? It's obviously through sort of like your coworkers, it's about sort of like, you know, creating sort of like either muting people, all right? Uh, and so people can just go on and on and on and complain. Uh, and, and, but, but people understand you, people around you, your coworkers understand what you're doing, right? Um, and so there's a certain community that is created in that moment of refusal to absorb any of this. And then call center hopping is precisely sort of like, well, these are opportunities. Again, this is a future not of my making. And that there's particular demands, you know, and and that there are sort of like people, there's companies, transnational companies, uh, call center companies uh, who actually take on contracts from different companies. So it's contract of a contract of a contract. Right. And so there's actually enough work to go around. And then I can actually then go from one place to another and make them compete for my labor. That is to say, I don't know how much are you going to offer me? Because it's important, especially English speaking ability, the, your experience with call center, other call center, it becomes really valuable when you actually go from job to job or BPO to BPO. Um, so it's not so much a refusal. I mean, it is a refusal, but it's also a survival mode, because how do you navigate the everyday precisely because of the sort of like the fact that your job is to modulate emotions uh, and actually react and solve things for people. Right? Uh, and these are all af- this is all affective work. And it's quite exhausting, you know. Um, and so sometimes maybe I, I'll quit because I know I'll get another job. I'm going to take three months off. I'll be okay. You know, depending on one's uh, financial situation, of course, you know, some people don't have that choice, but there is demand. So right now, right now, there's demand. Uh, I hint at the fact that AI is going to actually take over. Uh, And in fact, many industry analysts have already said that AI will be taking over uh, call center work, you know, so of course. You know those those of us in the global north who depend on call centers, of course, are just horrified. I mean, we're already horrified by having to reach a call center. Uh, now we're going to be horrified with reaching an AI uh, instead of a human person, uh, a, a human person rather than a, 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 um, a artificial person uh, speaking to us.
1: You know.
2: Yeah, and you know another kind of refusal that piqued my interest was the refusal to wallow in your analysis of the musical care divas. And, you no, know, I'll let you speak more about it, but, you know, this musical uh, interview stories of Filipinos and Palestinians in Israel. And as I was reading the chapter, something that really came to mind to me was the concept of sumud in Palestinian literature. So I'm curious about refusal's capacity to form affective... Bonds across time and space between different communities or different diasporic communities?
0: I mean, what's interesting to me, so the the Care Divas is a musical that was produced by PETA, the Philippine Educational Theater Association. Um, And it's a very, and it it, it is very politically minded, but all the writers, the actors, they actually work as a collaborative team uh, and the director. And so it was important for me to actually talk to the writer and the director to actually get at both the political stakes that they infuse in writing and creating this musical, right? What is the theoretical frame that they want? And one of the, the, in, in one of my interviews, you know, the director told me it's about the refu- What well, one of them is about the refusal to wallow. I I I love the way that the, the musical, of course, is brilliant. Right? It started off, you know, uh, back in two thousand eleven, and then it's been going on until two thousand seventeen. It was actually quite popular, and presented to Manila audiences, uh, and it was a response in some ways um, of 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 the the uh, the documentary film, uh, Paper Dolls by Thomas Heyman, uh, and so. But 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 it actually goes against the very sensibilities that that documentary created. That is really about sort of a sentimental attachment to family and the nation state. On the contrary, I think the musical itself refuses this notion of family as somehow resolving anything. Right? Uh, that in fact the family can actually be the exploitative like unit both in the Philippines, the Filipino family that actually sends sends their daughters or sons to actually go uh, to elsewhere because they are the hope of the family, but also the nation-state, both the sending nation-state and the host nation-state, which actually wants to and profits from the labor uh, that they do, you know, uh, in, in transnational terms. So in a sense, w- what is it that 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 these folks have in common is precisely uh, the the fact that neither nation state is truly invested in their humanity, precisely because they're translated into remittances, into money for the nation state or for the family. So, what are the other way? What are the alternatives? What other communities or communalities, uh, as I I term in the book, right? Not so much community because I think that's a very fraught and well worn sort of like word, but Communality to me is a temporary community, you know, by necessity, by survival, but also by love. Right. Uh, and by recognition. Right. People who are other migrants. So when I actually went to Israel or even in, in other places where whether in Tokyo or whether in Hong Kong in many places that I've gone to talk to Filipino workers and other Filipinos, the, the automatic affinity and sort of the welcome that I felt was just there. Right, and so I, I, I think even when I landed in Dubai, I knew I was not going to be lost, uh, uh, precisely because there would be sort of like this temporary community uh, 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 that that is possible. But but also is understanding for Peta writing care divas was actually bringing the Palestinian Israeli conflict in another context. Number one most. Most people in the world might not even know that there's 100,000 Filipinos in working in Israel as caregivers as part of a national plan. It was national policy to, to actually hire Filipinos who most likely will not, because it's predominantly Christian and Muslim, would not, in fact, make aliyah, uh, would not become citizens of the Philippines. It guarantees necess- you know, that they are not stay, right? These are temporary workers. So that it is part of a national plan. And the idea is, is, is that the encounters of Filipinos in different places, whether it's in the US, whether it's in Bahrain, whether it's Israel, that I touch on uh, throughout the book, that there are always marginalized and colonized uh, uh, populations within these spaces. It's not as if the host country is homogenous either. It actually has its own hierarchies, you know? So how do you deal? It's really about minor to minor conversations and dialogue or Global South-Global South dialogue that I think PETA really wanted to to, to make make apparent to a different audience in the Philippines. That there is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in which Filipinos are part, precisely because they are present, they are proximate, they are there, they are in the markets, they are in the homes, they are in public and in private spaces. So how do they articulate themselves within this conflict, within the precarity of a conflict? Right, And these terms like home, belonging, rules, law, illegal, uh, all those terms mean different things, whether one is Palestinian or whether one is Filipino in Israel. But they are actually then, they, they, they are given different histories. These histories come together in frictive ways. right? And I think that frictive history is very important to recognize. And I think uh, as as scholars, we bring that out. We bring these multiple histories that come together, uh, some, uh, some by accident, but some by intentionality. Because in a sense, the exclusion of Palestinians, and then certainly the inclusion of Filipino workers is part of a nation building program, right? So how do you articulate those two histories? right, one of colonialism and one of labor exploitation, you know, uh, garnered through colonialism also, uh, you know, come to actually speak to each other. And I think that's something productive um, in thinking about it what, in, in whatever conclusion one can make of it. Uh, but I think it is important to actually bring these frictive histories and populations um, in juxtaposition, acknowledging their proximity, being alongside each other, as I say in the book, I think to be in opposition—that is to say, to be side by side—creates a negotiation and demands negotiation and acknowledgement. In one sense, right? One can be in the same room but not acknowledge each other, of course. But I think it's—it's—it's it's, a—but—but—but but, but I think as 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 scholars, we 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 try to see that. Uh, we try to see why that acknowledgement does not exist. Because it's also engineered and by design, you know. There, that's why the gaps and silences. Just to go back to gaps and silences, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's such a, you know, a big project that requires a collectivity. And I appreciate your place in, um, creating these kinds of acknowledgments and appositions. Um. With that said, you know, in terms of your methodology. Again, something that really stood out to me was the role of talking or speech or multiple ways in which um, that was engaged throughout the book. So on the one hand, with your interviews with co-workers, we see you know, people whose job it is to talk uh, and to do certain kinds of affective work. Um, but on the other hand, they talk to you, which takes on a different kinds of affective position. Um, But also, you know, as you mentioned, it was very important to you to speak to people who produce cultural products, right? Right? So you interviewed directors, playwrights, among other folks involved in that kind of work, which is, you know, another kind of speech, another kind of talking that still brings out um, the effective work that they wanted to do through these products. So I'm curious about, you know, these different um ways of speaking and have you positioned yourself across um this kinds of um
0: speech work perhaps or right, talk right, work. Right. And and I'm wondering if it's um it's interesting, is is it talk work or is it a different types of engagement, right? Which is to say that, you know, there is a different uh goal, let's say, in speaking. With call center agents, hanging is very important, which is to say um uh speaking and not speaking are equally as important um and i made sure that it's actually group it was during their dinner time which is to say breakfast for non-call center agents uh so it was during their dinner time and they all got off work at the same time and so uh, as a group they there's a recognition of each other as being in the same condition um and the fact that I made clear that I spoke uh, at least that one of the local languages Tagalog or Taglish for that matter, uh, or that I can code switch, that was very important for them, because my first interview, which then you know re- uh, gave me uh, referrals uh, to other call center agents, was the first request was I don't want to speak in English. Just because I've been speaking English for eight hours, for the past eight hours, and to me, English is work. And so um, I want, and and so it's interesting because, in one sense, she, she was right. English, number one, is the language of work, but number two, it's also a language that's scripted. She was already, in a sense, given a script on what to say in English. But if she were to switch to Taglish or Tagalog then or Filipino, uh, then she's free to actually play on words to get at nuances because English is about a medium of direct communication, presumably. Right. Uh, And so that's 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 what she attaches English with, whereas Taglish and, you know, she can talk to me while she was doing her chores around the house because she had to go back home uh uh you know and then take care of the kids and uh other things in the house you know the second shift uh or the third shift for that matter um and then so at least she was free to free sh- to to free associate and i think that's really important uh especially with uh interviewing in groups that they actually can associate free associate and actually um relate to what each other is talking about um, and so in that way, it was a different type of interview, right? Uh, I mean, indeed, always interviews are always co-interviews. I understand, but here that it it I became diffuse in that sense. Um, I think, and not to say that it's any more objective, because I was still listening to particular cues, obviously. Um, and so that that is that that made it less work to make sure that I could to, that they know I can code switch. In even in when I was talking to uh, caregivers in Israel, I did learn uh, because. They live in in, in uh, with Jewish families, Jewish Israeli families. Uh, I did learn uh, Hebrew uh, just so that they are comfortable knowing that I can know I know I am comfortable. It, it does not sound foreign that I speak both Tagalog, English, and some Hebrew at that moment. Um, so, it, so that is sort of like a different sort of comfort level that I wanted to bring into the 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 the, the talk work, uh, the speech work. Um, that they can talk to me with layers and nuance if they can't quite get at it in one language, they have other choices. So I wanted to give them that, that, that pathway if they so wished. Um, and of course, and, and with the director and the writer uh, of Care Divas, I mean, that was different. I mean, for, that, for, for me, that was very intentional in a sense of, well, what was your vision? I want to know what that vision was, how is it infused, how has it changed during the collaborative process? Because the actors are very much part of the collaborative process when they start to rehearse. So there's lots of ad-libbing, there's like adding, um, just because of the way that the radical sort of like traditions of theater um, in PETA. Um, but of course the production is like any other sort of like, you know, muse- uh, uh, theater production, but the process I think is very politically informed. Uh, and for the, uh, for me, that was important to get at uh, with, uh, um, with 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 uh, with the writer and director, and also just to listen for the cues, just because I think that the politics is very important, uh, especially in the, this production. So I wanted to respect that, and I, I I hope, in one sense, precisely because of the engagement that you asked me about, I am responsible to them. I'm responsible to the people I speak with and engage with. I am responsible to be at least reflect some of the nuances and some of the gaps some of the ambiguities some of the doubts they might have in speaking with me and to also record that you know what are my observations about that so i am you know i i I am sorry i did could not it would be impossible for me to include everything and anything for raw material and the raw interview material but i hope i had gotten enough of some kind of essence of the conditions of work and how they create worlds with each other. That is, I mean, my focus obviously is is how people create worlds, right? Even within, even within this sort of like, uh, uh, even within this sort of like uh, predetermined contract of labor, there are ways by which they experience the world together and they make time together. And that's what I want to get at, right? The uncaptured moments. It's about the quality of time, right? Time has been quantified when it comes to labor. You're paid eight hours a day at a certain rate. But what is demanded of you is about your creative labor. So what is it about the quality of time? How the time feels with the person cared for, with your coworkers, how does time feel? That is an infinite possibility because it's about creative possibilities. And I guess to go back to your question, it's like, and that's why I really am interested in cultural expressions and storytelling. How do they tell those stories? Because that's not paid for, right? The creative capacity is what they want, but how you use that creative capacity is something else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking us through the very thoughtful process by which you um put in work to finish this book as well so you know that's also something to acknowledge right um the effective work that you put in to produce this wonderful book um and you know we've been speaking quite a bit about futurity so i think it's only fitting if we end this interview with something about the future so my last question is what is next for you what are you currently reading writing thinking or teaching about
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And, then, and it's, been, it's been a fun interview, so thank you uh, for making it fun. So what am I doing? Um, so I, I was fascinated by my... Uh, I concluded with the online funerals or remote funerals in this book. And then really the subject of death in the last chapter and also in the conclusion really led me to think about death and dying in diaspora. What does it feel like? What does it mean to always, not always, but by necessity... Like, you know, with COVID, the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of, of online and uh, remote funerals, but that has been the condition for a lot of migrant laborers throughout the world, that they never get to go home for funerals or any family obligations that has to be online. So, for example, online funerals has been a main staple in the Philippines for about a decade now, right? You can actually log in to the funeral. And so, that, and so I was fascinated by what worlds are created. What other relationships or types of presence can one achieve through the vir- through virtual means, right? So, death and dying, di- and di- uh, death and dying in diaspora is is my next project, and I'm hoping to look at sort of like how um, contemporary artists are reanimating Philippine folklore beliefs or cosmologies about death and dying in their work now, like how. Because death and dying to me is the end of life, so you can't extract labor anymore. But what does it mean? So if you can't extract labor anymore. What, what does that mean for narrative? What does it mean for politics? You know, it's this moment of disappearance, which I think, and again, since I'm so involved with with gaps and silences and spaces, uh, it is fascinating to me. It's like what worlds and lives are created out of death, dying, mourning, transformation, even. You know, these are different cosmologies that I want to look at. And how do artists actually um, re- reuse, reactivate these folkloric cosmologies into contemporary art? Uh, so that's what I'm looking at right now. So I'm also looking at uh, the notion of atopia uh, rather than utopia, since I was never really interested in sort of like, you know, oh, a normative sort of like, you know, uh, notion of, well, this is what policy is. It's like terrible. It's terrible how we treat laborers, but you know, and therefore we should treat them this way. It's like, no, but I'm trying to think about other ways to think about place in a way. To, there's an unpredictability of teloy right? The, the, uh, how unpredictable endings. Uh, and what does, uh, what does atopia offer us, you know, theoretically as a frame, I know it's used in architecture. Um, but, It's also in one of the installation artists uh, that I'm looking at uh, in which he combines um, organic and inorganic materials and just to see how they fuse um, and and, and how we can actually think about other worlds uh, in this combination. So that's where I'm at.
2: These sound so fascinating. Hopefully, when those books are out, we'll have you back. But for now, thank you very much, Alan, for joining us and for your insights.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone.
2: This is your host, Alizar Jan. This discussion of Filipino Time, affective Worlds and Contracted Labor, published by Fordham University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.